0: We've passed the equinox, it was the 20th of March, and perhaps colder weather, although there's not much sign of that yet, at least in Melbourne, where 3CR broadcasts from, and indeed we are 3CR, Melbourne's foremost community radio station, broadcasting since 1976 and going stronger than ever. I'm Jan Bartlett, and my program, Tuesday Home Time, has been there for the long haul. And I hope you can stay with me for the next two hours. And then it's the excellent program done by law. Today, we continue to expose the dangers of deep sea mining with Dr. Helen Rosenborn from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. The main focus, an environmental impact statement labelled sham company, a sham practice and a sham regulatory authority. Then on to the campaign to pressure superannuation funds to quit nukes. No more investing in nuclear weapons companies. I'll be speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. The British judicial system erecting another barrier for Julian Assange to jump over to prevent extradition to the United States. And... The War in Ukraine, War Not Peace, with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, OAM, from Sydney University. And Staying with the War in Ukraine, an article in Pearls and Irritations by Binay Kampmark, lecturer at RMIT University here in Melbourne, titled, quote, Good Refugees, unquote. But as ever, we begin with, Mr. Kevin Healy to find out what he thought about the last week.
1: A week, Jan Listener, when sadly a major threat has emerged to the economic recovery and to the hopes of controlling inflation. Wages. Evil unions have announced they will be demanding demand, I mean how dare they, demanding wage increases of five to six percent as wages fall behind the soaring cost of living increases. Those who comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy looked aghast, pointing out responsibly this would threaten the economic recovery and sabotage hopes that inflation will recede. The common sense of caring employers was put logically by our favourite spokesperson for True Blue the oligarchs, industry profits groups in us will cost the workers.' Union claims for blanket 5 to 6% wage increases betray their lack of understanding of both how the economy works and the current significant pressures on business as they try to recover from a once-in-a-century economic shock. Uh, is that similar to the once-in-a-century natural disasters that now occur once a week or so, in this case especially when evil unions suggest major threats like wage increases? Yes, yes, you could say that, and that only highlights how irresponsible evil unions are, that they would threaten economic shock after economic shock. Which bit of how the economic uh, economy works don't evil unions understand in us? The relationship between profits and wages, how wages restrict economic growth, and that economic growth is good for all of us. Growth like the record. Profits, hundreds of percent in some cases, many, many times five to six percent true blue the oligarchs have been announcing. Exactly. And that growth will trickle down through sensible wage increases when the time is right, uh, uh, which will be, we'll let you know. Oh, goody. So we urge irresponsible evil unions to hold fire. Stop threatening the economic recovery. Stop undermining inflation. Stop betraying their economic ignorance. And wait for Ennis and our oligarchs to tell us when the time is right and more shattering news this week affecting us all listener a blatant and unjust attack on our oligarchical family trusts by the bloody tax department which has no right to interfere in our affairs which are after all a matter between us and our tax accountants and tax lawyers. No business whatever of the tax department and the government, yet the tax department announced it will introduce new rules for family trusts after a long investigation into anti-avoidance measures, The, the assumption being that our family trusts avoid, when we know they simply allow us to meet our legal tax obligations. That's why we pay those exorbitant, but value-for-money fees to accountants and tax lawyers. Our anger expressed for all of us by Tony Greco of the Institute of Public Accountants. All of a sudden, Tony was distressed. Basic transactions involving trusts are now open to indefinite scrutiny. The update guidance has shifted the goalposts for the way a trustee allocates trust income to beneficiaries in a tax-effective way. Uh, Tax-effective, Tony. Well, yes, it means effectively they pay no tax. But, and I can't stress this strongly enough, but these people meet their legal tax obligations. Uh, And now, And now they'll have to pay us more so that under the shifted goalposts, they can continue to meet their legal tax obligations. God, it's a worry, but there is some hope. The Tax Institute questioned whether the tax office should use limited resources to review these arrangements at all and will make representations to the tax office and no doubt to senior government ministers on behalf of those families who are so close-knit and family-oriented that they have their little family trusts. Absolutely, what a waste of resources trying to get the filthy rich to pay taxes when we all know they already meet their, well, we all know. And I told you, this affected us all. And it's not that a bit of sensible lobbying for a worthy cause can't be effective, like that bloody tax, as the industry calls it, levy, the state government names it, of a crippling 1.75% on windfall profits from land rezoning and property development to be used to provide social and community housing. They never used the word public housing anymore. The money would have been handed to private organisations who could handle these things much more efficiently than the bloated hand of the public sector. Anyway, the mere suggestion causing the development and property industry to reach for the smelling salts and splutter as they regain their voices, that this would be the end of the world as we know it, and particularly the end of young couples, young first-home buyers, being able to afford that first home. And that is their sole concern. No self-interest, no care for their own profits, just their altruistic regard for young true Thankfully, they agreed not to oppose a related change which would streamline planning approvals and zoning changes, pouring trillions in windfall profits into their coffers, which presumably they would use to make it even easier for young couples to buy that first home. As they screamed and yelled about the levy, or sorry, tax, the Federal Socialists reputedly panicked that the 1.75% could lead to the Socialists being accused of being a high-tax party. And thus, as the property industry screamed and yelled, the proposed levy for social, not public, housing lasted roughly three and a half minutes, give or take. Top marks to the socialists for courage under fire. They're also proposing stronger environmental regulations, stronger energy efficiency standards for new housing, and again, the industry is upset nay, stronger, righteously up in arms, that this too will lead to increasing the cost to first-home buyers their sole concern, altruism upon altruism. Except... A separate report by a house mortgage group excitedly assesses that house and land prices in the very urban fringe areas where many first-home buyers first-home buy are going through the roof, pun unavoidable. And the same industry concerned about increasing costs for these people is popping the corks and celebrating that prices are soaring. Dear me, for so caring and selfless an industry, there must be a much simpler explanation than hypocrisy and greed. Especially when reports also tell us those soaring costs of living increases are hitting those same areas hardest. Those same people about whom the industry so cares hardest. Hardest. Oh, and the Federal Caring Business Class Party unaffordable housing minister, Michael Sucker, after capital, accused the state socialists of increasing the tax burden on all Victorians, which we don't doubt must be true, can't doubt from so important a personage, but, Michael, a little explanation of how a 1.75% levy, sorry, tax on property developers and speculators in the home construction industry would be a tax on all of us and we all appreciate Michael's contribution to the housing affordability crisis like attacking any attempt to address it Another minister taking her job very seriously, the Minister for Pollution, Susan Lees and Dregs, took these young environmentalists to court to argue that she had no responsibility or whatever of care for them in assessing all the new fossil projects she keeps approving, overturning an earlier irrational federal court ruling that she does have a duty of care. Obviously, I can't keep approving these important national projects if I have to take their environmental impacts into consideration, she made a telling point, which shows how juvenile and puerile and irresponsible and anti these young people are. She got stuck into a bit of tautology as she came up with a fail-safe plan to thwart any other juvenile, puerile, irresponsible, anti-troubler attempt to impede progress. We will declare all these fossil rich areas where the industry wants to benefit the country by exporting it exempt from environmental considerations or more correctly we will conduct a generic environmental approval process for all of them so applications can be approved immediately knowing they will meet my very strict environmental pollution standards. One of the esteemed corporations long respected for observing strict environmental standards and which announced record profits in the hundreds of percent would side with profits. Supremo Kevin Gallbladder of Piss told us how the fossil giants generally would achieve zero emissions by 2050, presuming optimist- optimistically the planet, is, the planet is still here. We will still need fossils and we will still have emissions he prognosticated. But but Kevin, how is that zero emissions? Quite simply, we will plant a tree in Java. Uh, But but surely zero emissions means zero emissions, no emissions. As our very good friend Will cost the workers explained, that question betrays your ignorance of how our economy works. One of the conga line of U.S., of the U.N., of the U.S., of the world experts, the ABC dredges up to inform us of how evil, evil Russia is. This one, with a euphemistic title that sounds quite passive, was stunned by the Russian bombing of a site near the Polish border, the International Peacekeeping and Security Center, clearly a benign establishment devoted to peace and security wanton destruction of all that is good. And it wasn't until some time later another interviewee was asked why they would bomb a centre so devoted to international peacekeeping and security that a slightly different story emerged. I'm surprised it took them so long, he expressed surprise, because it turns out the title was also a euphemism, because the peacekeeping security center is, was, the pipeline for U.S. of NATO weaponry entering Ukraine, and the headquarters for the U.S. of trained training of Ukraine-trained killers. Perhaps not a euphemism, for the USOV knows that war is peace, train killing is security, and while none of this justifies putting the train killers' thuggery and slaughter, a little bit of honesty in the conga line of pro-USOV interviewees wouldn't go astray. On the USOB, new biography of our former great and beloved big supremo nuclear hawk himself says he's very, very, very close buddy, former USO big supremo George Bash, the worker's senior, choked up with emotion when he saw nuclear hawk relegated to the back bench after poor nuke was knocked off by the world's greatest works next treasurer, Paul. And I thought, I know how he felt, because I choked up when I saw nuclear hawk on the front bench. Last week, we conceded the government was being honest for once in its telly ads promoting its environmental credentials. Rubbish, 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 the ad admits. And we have to make the same concession to Lord Rupert of Wapping for ads for his pay TV pie in the sky so-called news commentary. A full page ad, photos of the usual suspect Lord Rupert acolytes, bolt through the head Peter Incredible et al, admitting inquiring minds demand more honest views. What a refreshing bout of honesty. They certainly do, and they're certainly not going to get it from Lord Rupert, and here he is admitting it. Finally, he doesn't say 3CR is the place for inquiring minds to get more honest views, but stuff false modesty, we'll say it. Good afternoon.
0: And thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy for his week that was. And don't forget to be up nice and early tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. For City Limits with Kevin and Friends. Well,
2: if you listen to three, say,
3: Oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, Oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, Oh, I yes, don't know where you are. If you listen to three, say, Oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, Oh, clap your hands. If you
4: listen to three, say, Oh, clap your hands. Well, check out the happening vibe. They're gonna ring up
5: and subscribe if you listen to three say, uh... Slap your ears! What? Who the hell is that?
3: Slap your ears! What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here! This is handmade radio. Slap your ears! Get out! Get the hell out of here now! Flip, dip, 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 dip. I don't even know who that is.
6: <laughs>
0: Bowl is on now. The open air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Myer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favorite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au. 3CR supporter. In a recent media release, opponents of plans for deep sea bed mining slammed the Metals Company and the Independent seabed Authority over the environment impact statement, claiming that it was a sham company, a sham process, and a sham regulatory authority. I was speaking today with Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Australian-based Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And to set the scene for this opposition to deep sea mining, Helen, it goes back over 10 years. What was the catalyst?
5: Oh, well, the catalyst for our campaign was actually the now bankrupt company, Nautilus Minerals, and their aspiration to mine hydrothermal vents deep in the Bismarck Sea of Papua New Guinea. So that was the focus. Of trying to um, stop that project and send that company bankrupt, which did happen um, with our contribution, was actually the focus of the first several years of, of our campaign. And I must say, you know, of course, it wasn't just ourselves, our own um, campaign. It was the collaborative efforts of Papua New Guineans, um, both at national level and at our local level, to where the Um, The mine was proposed and uh, out of that has come a really strong alliance called the Alliance of Solwara Warriors, which continue to work on uh, trying to stop deep sea mining in their country because even though that particular company is now bankrupt, we don't know what's happened to the licences that the government issued to that company. And the government under this Prime Minister, Marape, has kind of in principle supported a moratorium at a Pacific regional leaders meeting oh, some years ago. But he's been very silent on what his government's approach is to deep-sea mining within Papua New Guinea. So they still have their work cut out for them, um, campaigning on deep sea mining within their country just to make sure the licences haven't been sold to another company is going to pop their head up. And of course, Chinese companies are kind of renowned for picking up from bargain basement mining licences for terrestrial mines. Um, from the scrap heap. So we um, alert that to the fact that that could be a possibility here and um, it would be quite hard to lobby a Chinese company so that that internal lobbying work would be very, very important.
0: But where did the push come from to start mining on the seabed?
5: Well, for about... 30, 40 years there's been um, mineral geological surveys of, of the seafloor um, around Papua New Guinea, around different parts of the Pacific and around Australia's own coastline as well. And um, the push has come... From well, in terms of what's happened um, just in recent times in the Pacific, the push has actually come from sort of geo prospectors who who were involved with these surveys and saw um, a whole lot of rocks and other forms of um, seabed substrate that contain minerals um, on the sea floor, and thought they could make some money out of it. So what the line that they're they're spinning you know is that we're at the point of depleting our land based sources of metals and that this could be the next great source of of metal make world demand. That's not completely true um, the The costs of obtaining metals on land is increasing because you know they the metals Raw metals are becoming, well, the locations um, where you could mine are are becoming kind of fewer. But um, there's a whole lot of other sources of metals, which are basically our junk piles (laughs) and also the tailings waste of previous mining attempts on land. So by just being a little bit more creative and thinking about circular economies, we could actually um, meet a large part of our demand for metals into the future through what we've already produced and thrown away. But, of course, there's also the whole demand management side of things and um, making a whole lot of our appliances and electronics fixable rather than chuckable. (laughs) That that would mean we don't have to mine the deep sea. But the, the drive is basically coming from for deep sea mining is basically coming from a handful, really, in terms of looking at the world population, a handful of individuals and companies uh, who just want to make a quick
0: buck. But Helen, there's a, a big difference between knocking down a mountain and digging a big hole and exploring deep sea mines.
5: Well, you know, we don't look after... In many cases, governments find it very hard to to monitor and address the impacts of mining on land. And a lot of our... Uh, colleagues in the Pacific would say that you know we've, we've done, they've done, their governments have done a very poor job of protecting communities and waterways and ecosystems on land from mining pollution. How on earth are they going to be able to do that three thousand to six thousand uh, metres under the sea? where the only people who can actually see exactly what's going on will be the mining companies themselves, until, of course, as time, time goes on, until the impacts are felt more, more widely by contamination within um, the food chain, that, you know, and especially for marine subsistence communities who rely heavily on, um, on fish stocks in their area, there's, there's differences in technology, um, and at the moment the technology isn't really there for for deep sea mining, but the approach of startup up mining companies on land and, um, and what we're seeing in the deep sea realm are very similar.
0: Well, let's talk about the metals company, which is a, the Lotus Cab off the rank, and their environmental impact statement. What do they want to do? Well, they want later this year to be
5: able to do deep-sea mining in the Pacific Ocean. They're calling it a, a nodule collector test. Uh, so what they want to do is to run through the whole process of mining nodules, polymetallic nodules, which are rocks, uh, small rocks on the on the bottom of the seafloor um, and they're at around... They are at around three to six kilometres under the the surface, and they want to do that within the contract area that has been granted to their subsidiary um, Nori, um, which is their Nauruan government partnership, uh, a company that's been formed with um, with Nauru and Nauru sponsored for Metals Company to gain this contract uh, for exploration. From the International Seabed Authority, so they're dressing this up as uh, as as a research survey, but what in fact it is is actually deep sea mining at a smaller scale than commercial scale, and it's going to have its own impacts. Just as we've been predicting the impacts of um, commercial scale deep sea mining to be severe and uh, and uh, potentially irreversible. On deep sea ecosystems this, we can expect that this deep sea mining test this deep sea mining experiments will have those same impacts but just at a smaller scale and um, if you actually read the fine print of what they intend to do um, that's ex- that's exactly what they want they don't actually want to mitigate the impacts of this, this deep sea mining experiment, they want to let it run so they can see what would be the impacts of deep sea mining at a commercial scale, and then come up with some, you know, strategies for ameliorating slightly those impacts enough to be able to sell sell the idea of commercial scale mining. But what we know is that their company with a, a strong vested interest in a particular outcome, they'll twist the results to suit their ends. The EIS that they released in the first instance for public comment was really substandard. It didn't meet the International Seabed Authority's own guidelines to companies for how to do environmental impact statements. And it didn't meet you know, what is the international norm for in, um, environmental impact statements. But we think that the International Seabed Authority is probably already approved the EIS. It was submitted to them last July, whereas we've, you know, it was open for public consultation for 45 days from last October. So um, we don't know what the ISA did with it <laughs> and the, um, the reaction of the ISA to it since... Since last July, but we expect that, that, you know, between them, it's it's probably a, a done deal, and that the um, the consultation process they held was just a sham for for show to to look as if they were following some kind of due process.
0: Who makes up this International Seabed Authority? Oh well, there's a secretariat that's based in Jamaica. And there's
5: um, a membership of 167 countries um, plus the EU uh, making
3: 168.
5: So it's interesting to note that the Nauruan government and the metals company are controversial in relation to the ISA in that last year they triggered something that's called the two-year rule. That is that they notified the ISA that they intend mining within 2 years regardless of whether the regulations for deep sea mining have been finalized so these this the negotiations around the regulations that would allow deep sea mining have been occurring under the ISA's auspices that's one of its uh, key roles is to oversee that process and they've been these negotiations have been ongoing for years because apart from getting right the environmental aspects of deep-sea mining, uh, the regulations for that, there's a whole lot of other financial and liability issues that need to be addressed. So um, Nauru's put a lot of pressure uh, upon the ISA to finish these regulations within... 2 years so that the metals company can begin mining a lot of countries have objected to that uh, they don't believe it's possible to finalize good regulations within that time and the african group of countries have actually been very outspoken on this there's, there's about 45 countries um, and so that you know basically indicated that they're unlikely to approve any application for mining from the from the metals company. So there's yeah there's quite a lot of consternation and chaos at the ISA that's been being caused by the metals company. but what what it indicates is that Neither Nauru or the metals company have really any regard for international processes, and that was reinforced by the fact that the metals company, when they um, submitted their um, their draft EIS, the fact that they didn't even bother to follow the ISA's own guidelines on it. Based on the feedback of stakeholders, um, the EIS has been revised, but um we we weren't given an opportunity to examine the extent to which the deficiencies in the in the first draft have been rectified. They released that revised EIS one day before they had a stakeholder consultation meeting. yeah, it's all it's all a bit smokes and mirrors, and um the lack of transparency and genuine openness to engagement is is lacking.
0: So, what's the next move for this company? Well, the next move for the company, they have been quite
5: busily selling themselves as an environmentally sustainable option to the growing number of investors who want to invest in the what's called the ESG sector, the environmental social governance sector so they were doing that on the basis of that the, what um the metals that they would provide would help us transition as a as a global society to um carbon neutral technologies the the metals um that they would provide are- You know, well, the the technology um, for renewable energy is rapidly changing, and especially for electric vehicle batteries. And um, as we and others have pointed out, the metals that they would be producing are likely to be redundant in terms of battery technology not requiring those metals any longer and having moved on. So I think the metals company um, have seen the writing on the wall with trying to sell their wares based on that argument and they've just over the last couple of weeks moved into the military space. So they've been making uh, presentations to the United States, buying into the... um, Well, being very opportunistic about the whole tragic situation with uh, Russia and the Ukraine, and also building on the, the fear... Of um, China that um, has been festering away in the US as well, it's locking up the supply of certain metals. So I think that's, um, that's probably their next move is to um, stop the pretense of or give up that pretense of being an ESG investment and um, try and get the the sort of military establishment backing them, which would be dreadful in terms of you know, an outcome for the um, ocean's ecosystems.
0: How many similar companies are there waiting to have your, their turn? Well, there's there's many companies. There's about
5: 35 companies who have been granted licenses by the International Seabed Authority for this area of the Pacific Ocean called the clarion Clipperton Zone and also other oceans around the world. They range from kind of startups like um, the metals company to government's uh, private consortia to even intergovernmental operations. but most of those are taking a far more considered slow approach, uh, a step by step approach just and um, are actually conducting proper research on um, the deep sea and um, likely impacts and gradually developing technology and trialling it. The metals company are definitely not the only company to be concerned about, but what concerns us about them is that they set a precedent in a very negative way because of the, their rush to, to mine the seafloor. They're pushing things along in a way that's going to be very deleterious for the environment and set a very poor example of how to regulate and how to manage deep-sea mining. Of course, um, our campaign and our colleagues in the Pacific don't want deep-sea mining to occur at all and we are, we are still working within our campaign to try and achieve a ban on deep-sea mining,
0: and that's the issue, isn't it that there's so many unknowns they don't even know what lives down there, how it lives, how it interacts with everything else yes, exactly and um and also,
5: you know there's been more information slowly coming out because it is very difficult to to reach the research the deep deep sea it's um it is very far away from us, and um some of the remote most remote ecosystems on the planet but but also of increasing concern is what um, disturbing the, the deep sea bed might mean in terms of uh, climate change and the carbon cycles in the sea because the sea the deep sea bed sequesters carbon and um, and so there has been some research trying to look at what might happen if carbon is released as a result from, from disturbing the deep seabed. So scientists have concluded that at this point it would be best to just leave that alone because we really don't know. But the concern is it could,
0: may well exacerbate the impacts of climate change in the ocean. And of course a large number of people actually live in those oceans. Well, they
5: live around those oceans. So in this area that we focus on, which has been a hive of exploration activity, the Clarion-Clipperton zone, it's called um, between Hawaii and Kiribati and on one side and Mexico on the other. That's a stretch of about 5,000 kilometres across. And there's a band with, if you look at a map, there's a band um, that's about 1,000 kilometres wide in which um, exploration licences have been granted. And that area is pretty much, that whole area is pretty much a patchwork of different exploration licences issued to different companies, different governments. So within that area, there's no islands that are inhabited. But all around that area are the Pacific Islands and, of course, the coast of Mexico and other Latin American countries. But see, the, the, the impacts of, uh, of deep-sea mining um, won't be felt just at the site at which the mining occurs because plumes of sediment will be generated uh, both at the seafloor as the mining machine churns up the, the soft sediment and And also, at what's called the midwater level, so probably somewhere around one thousand meters down, uh, mining companies have indicated that's the area they're planning to discharge their waste from preliminary processing of the nodules, so the um, ocean current carry whatever is in that waste um far and wide and there's been to date there hasn't been any rigorous um, modelling of what it is that could be that we might expect to be in those those plumes of waste, what chemicals from processing there may still be in there, what heavy metals may be released through the preliminary pro- processing of the nodules that may be taken up in the food chains. So all of that is is very uncertain and it's possible that those metals and contaminants could find their way into the coastal waters of the Pacific Island countries. But also in those areas and, and fishing of stocks such as tuna, which is really vital to Pacific Island economies and important economically throughout the world, And, of course, the tuna ends up on the dinner plates of people everywhere. So um, we could all find ourselves affected.
0: We've only got to think about Fukushima, how the contaminated water from there ended up right across the Pacific.
5: Indeed, yep. Or um, any of the messes we create (laughs) anywhere. The Murururur Atolls, for example. There's been modelling that's... um, That's shown, um, in fact, released last year by a team of people we work with too called Interpret, who conduct visual uh, modelling of um, environmental crimes. And they've actually got a very good visual representation of the spread of radioactivity from those detonations.
0: Well, there might be a lot of companies who have... Their eyes on this, but there's also a lot of environmental groups worldwide who are also got their eyes on them exactly
5: and um, one really great outcome last year because this hasn't been Deep sea mining hasn't really been widely discussed um, publicly at this point and um, so you know that's our job and the job of all the organizations that we work with and we're a member of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, which now has about 90 member organisations that have a concern about some um, deep sea mining as well. And, um, and many of them are very active in, in this sphere and at different levels. So we tend to work more in collaboration with organisations at the Pacific regional and local country levels other organisations work with um, businesses and there's been quite a number of businesses, global businesses, who have signed a, a statement committing to not use deep-sea uh, metal source from deep-sea mining. And um, they include businesses like Google, Samsung, Volvo, Renault. So even uh, the car industry that is producing electric vehicles. Some members, you know, notable members, um, BMW as well, have signed on to to this business statement. Some banks have established policies uh, excluding finance to deep-sea mining activities. And the IUCN, the International kind of uh, quasi-government, quasi-NGO entity that sort of really its members span the globe. Last year passed a resolution calling for a moratorium on deep-sea mining and also for a review of the International Seabed Authority because um, of its lack of trans... And because it's been quite um, clear that the ISA has the interests of mining companies at heart rather than its member nations. So I think that was really significant because that was the outcome of the, really the first international discussion between governments and between civil society about deep sea mining and uh, we really should be having many more such discussions and all sorts of um, levels and all sorts of fora.
0: How difficult do you believe it will be to reform it? Reform the ISA? Yes. I'm not an ISA
5: expert as such, but the vested interests there are, are, have uh, will we'll fight back. <laughs> But I think with a with a change of leadership, because the general secretary of the the ISA in particular has been very fond of Deep Green, um, the forerunner of uh, the Metals Company, and um, and now the Metals Company, Michael Lodge used to in fact advertise for for Deep Green, and um, as one of our um, reports. Has him on the um, uses the photo that he tweeted of himself several years ago, of him in a hard hat at the launch of a deep green uh, vessel, basically saying how how great this is that you know deep green are taking off and here I am, you know, promoting them. Interestingly, that photo's been and some of the advertising videos he did for deep green have been taken off the web, but we've got downloaded copies if anyone wants to to see this. Yes, they realised eventually that it wasn't a good look and that the General Secretary of an international body regulating the mining industry shouldn't actually be advertising for the mining industry. But the fact that they didn't recognise that from the outset just shows how
0: entrenched those relationships are and those attitudes are... And your web page or Facebook will show people a lot more than what is, actually is going on? Yeah. So, yes, you know, our own websites
5: and um, Deep Sea Mining Campaign, uh, which is actually under renovation, but you can still find all our resources there. And also the websites of our allies, Um the Pacific Blue Line Collective, the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Uh, those two, in particular, I think, will inform people with a lot of um, wide-ranging information on deep sea mining, um, both in terms of its social impacts and its environmental impacts, and also um, the alternatives to deep sea mining. I mean, really, there's just there's just no need <laughs> to dig up. To what has been to now a fairly intact ecosystem, and one that we really haven't even identified in terms of science. We don't know the species, but we don't know how they interact with other species uh, in the water column.
0: And many thanks to Dr. Helen Rosenbaum from the Australian based Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And do look up those web pages because it's a very important issue. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash
6: podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
4: A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive in parliament and on the streets. And all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win.
7: Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter.
0: Radio for the workers, by the workers, since
3: 1976.
0: Quick Nukes is an initiative of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War in collaboration with ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons and seeded with financial support from the Jesse Street Trust. The target group are Australian super funds and the goal is to ask Australian super funds to divest completely across all portfolios from companies that produce or support the production or deployment of illegal nuclear weapons. In December, they released a report in collaboration with the Australian Institute assessing the policy and practice of Australia's most important super funds. One of the team is Dr. Margie Beavers from MAPW. And when we spoke, I pointed out that this was an ambitious program and asked who, why target super funds? Why not other large corporations or businesses? Super funds are really all of our retirement savings. So it's sort of our money. And they
7: do a terrific job. But when you look at the Australian population, the vast majority of people do not want their money in superannuation to be supporting the nuclear weapons industry. We've done two surveys, 2018, 2020, where between 71% and 79% said, no, they really this is not what they wanted their retirement savings to be supporting. And so we looked at superannuation funds because a lot of them are not for profit. They return profit from members. These are places that need to establish their trying to think of the right phrase, but their modus operandi needs to be in concert with what their members want. And members clearly do not want superannuation in nuclear weapons. So it was an obvious place to start. I mean, the whole finance industry is problematic, but this was like we thought we'll start begin at the beginning and this was where we'd
0: start. Now, there's an awful lot of super funds. How did you choose the ones that you did?
7: We looked on my super website and basically picked the largest ones. So we looked at 22 funds. Um, interestingly they're all merging is because of a variety of pressures, not least coming from the government, a lot of these funds are merging to try and improve performance. but we looked at twenty two funds which represents more than 80 percent of the funds under management currently and more than 80 percent of the members, although of course this doesn't include self-managed superannuation. and really most of them do have investments in nuclear weapons producers, um, which is really very disappointing. So we did a sort of quite a detailed analysis of what they actually did. And it really, it's encouraging to see there's change afoot, but there's also lots of things that people can do to try and help push their superannuation funds along.
0: Just wondering, Margie, what these funds said to you and your colleagues when you knocked on the door and said, we want to ask you a few questions about your investments. What was your reaction? We've had lots of conversations over the last, we've been going for nearly three years. Quit Nukes was formed by... Medical
7: Association Prevention of War and joined up with ICANN. We've had some very good conversations with a lot of the funds. Some of the funds wanted to have nothing to do with us. For instance, Australian Super, which is the biggest fund, one in 10 people in Australia have their money with Australian Super, wanted to have nothing to do with us. They have nearly $1.5 billion in nuclear weapons producers and they were really very hard to get into see. whereas a lot of other funds were happy to talk to us about why they do what they do. And we've sort of pointed out to them that, you know, quite a number of funds clearly do not have money in controversial weapons. So they recognise that, you know, things like chemical weapons and biological weapons, landmines are not appropriate for their investment portfolios. And really, when you think about nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons is worse than all of those. And since the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons ended into force January last year, they're just as illegal so the rationale for excluding controversial weapons which a lot of funds do but not excluding nuclear weapons makes no sense um that it's sort of like being half pregnant you can't say on your website we exclude controversial weapons but then when you read the fine print find that, that they don't actually include nuclear weapons in their controversial weapons definitions
0: and that's the thing isn't it definitions Oh, the, the devil is in the detail. I mean, it really is extraordinary. There's a couple of funds who
7: say that they exclude controversial weapons and exclude nuclear weapons, but then when you read the fine print, you find that, that this is subject to a, a threshold, which means that they will invest in nuclear weapons provided the company makes less than 25% or less than 5% of the company's profits come from nuclear weapons. So it's re- or revenue rather than profits. So it's really that, that's a couple of funds. That's Hester and Vision Super. The ones that exclude controversial weapons but don't have nuclear weapons in their portfolios are ones like AWARE, SunSuper, RestSuper. I could go on this whole list. But HostPlus, we're very pleased. HostPlus has committed to excluding nuclear weapons from all its portfolios from January this year. And AWARE is considering at a board meeting early this year to review the criteria of what whether nuclear weapons are in fact a controversial weapon. And we're very optimistic that given they're illegal under international law and clearly very controversial that their criteria will change. So AWARE looks like it's going to jump on board. Care Super, um, once it understood what we were doing in terms of the report, because what we did with the report last year, I think some of your listeners would probably already be aware of this, but we put together this report on these 22 funds and we let them know in advance that we were going to do it. We said six months before we did it, we said we're going to do this, it'll be at the end of the year. And we'll write to you and tell you if your if your policies have changed in that six months, we'll write to you a month ahead of time so we can make a note of that in the report. So Host Plus did divest. Aware looks like it's in the process of divesting. And CareSuper divested as nuclear weapons holdings but still needs to change its policies. So we're going, we've sort of got a watching brief on Care Super. But it's really very hard for people who think they're investing. I mean, even, for instance, Australia's super, even if you're in their ethical portfolio, you're still investing in nuclear weapons. In fact, when we did an analysis of their holdings, the people in the ethical portfolio had more by percentage holding in nuclear weapons than the other, the rest of the holdings. So it was sort of people often don't realize that you actually, unless you're a sort of policy nerd and go into all the policy detail, you may think that you're investing ethically, but in fact still be funding nuclear weapons producers.
0: Just interesting to know how many of the the funds managers you spoke to were aware of the UN Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It was interesting. Quite a lot were not, um, and they were very open to be told. Quite a lot were still operating
7: with the understandings of the non-proliferation treaty, which is now a 50-year-old treaty. Quite a few had heard of it, but were keen to meet with us to get the detail about it. We're really excited. We met with the Responsible Investing Association of Australia, which is a very big organisation, and a lot of the superannuation funds have products, um, You know that the, the actual type of superannuation product that people invest in. Those products are certified by RIAA and are nuclear. And now from this year, they're going to advise that, to get certification, all those superannuation funds that rely on the Responsible Investment Association of Australia do need to be nuclear weapons free, and that's a big step forward because there's a lot of funds who rely on RIAA to show that they're responsibly investing. So we're really delighted that the Responsible Investing Association have taken this on board and are running with it too. You know, the inclusion of nuclear weapons as controversial weapons is pretty clear cut. It's not that controversial really, and. Uh, and we're very excited about that too.
0: It's, it is really great, though, that to know that there are these superannuation funds who've already done the right thing and they've got a list of yes. the... I mean, I, we're connected with Australian oh. Ethical and they've got a list of the industries that they will not touch.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Australian Super, Active Super, Christian Super, Crescent Wealth, Future Super, Verve Super and this year Host Plus, all look pretty good and we're really delighted and we're hoping that Aware Super and Care Super can join that list this year.
0: So where does this report go from here? That's a very good question. The legislation that
7: went through Parliament last year suggests that superannuation funds will have to be transparent about their holdings by March 30th this year. Which is new. It took us a lot. Of, it was a lot of research needed to get this information because the vast majority of subvenuation funds don't tell you what they're invested in. You have to sort of do detective work and go and look at where they'd voted at various AGMs and, and where they'd put in proxies. We may repeat the report next this year. A second option may be to look at the, um, if you like, the wholesalers of these retail of these funds, where people like Morgan Stanley in America who put together groups of funds sort of baskets of funds that they then sell on and we would say to them that you know controversial weapons when they're putting together these these collections of funds for the superannuation people to invest in that they need to be very clear that nuclear weapons are controversial weapons and so when the fund says i don't want controversial weapons they get a a group of companies that is not involved in nuclear weapons production so that's another option another option would be to work on the future fund which has enormous investments in nuclear weapons products nuclear weapons producers and there's a few other avenues we might go down
0: so a great deal of work for a small number of people
7: <laughs> yup
0: <laughs> surprise surprise
7: terrific. yes yes um we've had some really expert people helping us margaret peril and rosemary kelly who are both from the industry sector Rose McKelly's involved in superannuation boards in the past and currently GM Ronald, Elise West, uh, Jenny Grounds. It's a a small team, but we all work pretty hard and it's really been very good to see the splash the report had last year. We did the report um, in shared with the Australia Institute who provided us with a lot of the research And so it's been really good working with them. They've done a great job. So the Australian Institute also should take a bow for this research and report.
0: Surprises coming out of this? Great expectations? (laughs) Great expectations. I always have great expectations.
7: It's a matter of getting the boards to realise that this is like tobacco. This is something that will kill millions and millions and millions of people and they're encouraging it by letting their funds go into these companies. So I think it's more just a gradual change. There hasn't been a norm. With the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, these weapons are now clearly illegal under under international law. Being illegal under international law, they are joining chemical weapons and biological weapons, and they're, they're morally indefensible in terms of investing in them. And I think what we need to do is get board members to understand that these are a major problem and often a very minor part of their holdings so they can get rid of them without really impacting on returns that it's not significant so if these are big ships and they take a long time to turn around I think what's been nice is to see see them starting to turn around and also what's been good is that they will engage with us um, some more than others but it's been a learning curve for me, certainly coming from the medical side of things. Learning all the all the financial terminology and the policies, and reading the fine print and understanding what it means has been has been a surprise for me.
0: But yeah,
7: no, I think it's for where we were two and a half years ago to now. I'm really pleased with how things have progressed. We just need to keep going,
0: and it's up to us as fund members to ask the questions.
7: Absolutely. If your listeners want to do something that's really pretty easy, they can go log on to ICANN Australia or MAPW, Medical Association of, of War, go to the Quick News report and you'll see there's three little buttons there. One is sort of to the summary of the report, one's to the actual report, and then there's one called Take Action. And that will give you a list of um, the superannuation funds where you can actually get involved so Australian Super Aware, BT, Care, Catholic, SEBUS, HESTA, LGIA, NGS, Q Super, Sun Super, REST, Telstra, Uni Super, Vision Super. Those funds, we've made it incredibly easy for you to write to them and say, what's your policy? You should be doing better. Um, Alternatively, you can just go through your own superannuation funds contact and just say, what is your policy on nuclear weapons producers? And just, just that's as simple as the question needs to be because a lot of them don't, haven't even really thought about it. They and then you can follow up with saying why is it not included in the controversial weapons exclusion? And if they don't have a controversial weapons exclusion, you should be thinking about a different superannuation fund because you don't want your superannuation in, in any of anything, any of the controversial weapons. It's quite totally inappropriate. Absolutely. So, yeah, if people go to the quit nukes, Quit Nukes or, or MAPW and then go to the Quick Nukes report and
0: then go to Take Action.
7: It's pretty straightforward.
0: Thank you, Margie. Thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and do have a look at their webpage to find out more about Quick Nukes. <music>
3: Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the second Newport Jazz Festival. 60 plus bands, seven venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians. 29th of April to 1st of May. Trad, swing, blues, big band, latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Tickets at the Newport Balls Club box office in Market Street or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au The Friendly Festival. The Newport Jazz Festival is a 3CR supporter.
4: Have you heard of Long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, You may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of Long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience Long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type Long COVID as a keyword.
6: A 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter.
8: I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.
0: The British judicial system has erected still another barrier to Julian Assange's freedom. On March 14, the UK Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal of the UK High Court ruling ordering his extradition to the US where he would face 17 charges under the Espionage Act and up to 175 years in prison for releasing evidence of U.S. war crimes. I spoke with Stuart Rees, I.M., Professor Emeritus from the Sydney University, author of the recently published press book, Cruelty or Humanity, and he's also the recipient of the Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize. I asked Stuart what reasons were given for the denial of the appeal
2: well as I read it they said there was no matter of law involved in other words the ideals of a common humanity of no consequence to lawyers they they play these black book games and we're supposed to be respectful and deferential it's an absolute it's just uh, mind-boggling but like I said they probably yeah, they probably met in. Gentlemen's clubs. This sort of inaccessible, class-based judgments have been going on for centuries, and they they just reappear.
0: But what a slur on the competence of Julian's lawyers!
2: Julian's lawyers must have thought that it was a wise thing to do to to, to appeal to the High Court. I mean, where they go, where they go from here? I've no, I've no idea. But then the law moves in mysterious ways. If you look at the judgment of those uh, rejecting the um, the idea that the Minister of the Environment has a duty of care to kids, that a high court, a federal court in, um, in Australia turned that one down this week. I mean, there's a, it's a total mystery how the law behaves. And we're supposed to be respectful of it. It's not transparent. It's, they're not accountable. There's, there doesn't seem to be any explanation. I've no idea what the, what Julian's lawyers are thinking or what comes next.
0: No, Does anyone know what comes next?
2: Well, it looks as though the only thing that happens now is that the case is referred to Priti Patel, the Home Secretary in Boris Johnson's government, who has proved to be the nastiest, most intolerant person ever to hold that ministry. She's also not very bright. God knows, and as like I said, unless she has a conversion on the road to Westminster, you know, it looks as though the Americans are going to get their way.
0: What role is there for the U- European Human Rights Court?
2: I think the only the only role is to forget about the official roles and pick up the phone and say this is a disgrace. I mean, Scott Morrison ought to be on the phone to Boris Johnson. Said, for God's sake, stop this. Enough is enough he sees in the middle of a world catastrophe, several world catastrophes. For God's sake, stop trying to punish this one man. Boris Johnson, ought to be on, get on the phone to do that. I don't know what um, whether Albanese ought to phone Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, and say the same thing. I've no response. Uh, Greg Barnes, the the lawyer from from Tasmania. Replied to me, but apart from that, I've had no other advice about. Um, well, I, I would have, I would have thought, you know, there was going to be an avalanche of protests, but a, my, my article seems to be the only one.
0: In the media here in Australia, the mass media doesn't cover it,
2: or do they? Oh no, no, they won't. They they might mention it. They might just mention it's happened, but they, but they're they're not interested in this, in, in the sort of analysis that I've written.
0: What role has the Labour Party in the UK played?
2: I think no official one. There's a dozen or more influential Labour MPs who've said this, this prosecution has to end. But whether Starmer and co have said anything, I, I, I don't know.
0: And just the fact that he's being kept in a maximum security jail, that should ring alarm bells for human rights all over the place.
2: I would have thought so. I mean, it's, outra- it's, it's an outrageous business. I don't know whether the other members of the Labour Party here, apart from Albanese, I don't know, but I've made sure that his, that article of mine finishes up on his desk, but whether he ever reads it, God only knows.
0: And when you think of, of how they've ruined the health of Julian over these years?
2: Oh, yeah, the cruelty is endless. I mean, ten years, 10 years of confinement, How he has died, God only knows. And then, of course, that judge, Judge Baratza, ruled that he should not be extradited because his mental health was so fragile. And then, of course, lawyers don't understand anything about mental health. They don't understand anything about a common humanity. They barely understand anything about human rights. That's the problem. So, I mean, human rights law doesn't have isn't very regarded very as very prestigious in the eyes of the lawyers. I don't know, you know, apart from trying to circulate my arguments, I don't know what to do now. So,
0: What's the likelihood of him ending up in a in a so-called max security jail? Well, I think... UK. You, in, sorry, in the United States. And how bad well, are they? America...
2: Love. They love punishment and they love prisons. They are macabre. They are
4: medieval
2: places. They're dominated by control and cruelty. I think there's, there'll be an avalanche of support from significant people, significant lawyers in the United States. But, um, you know, what difference that would make? I mean, Biden's a very weak president. Morrison ought to be on the phone to Biden as well as to as
0: well as Johnson. He ought to be doing a lot of things, shouldn't he? Well, indeed, yeah, yeah, but he hasn't got any principle,
2: he hasn't got any courage, more likely to want to be photographed washing a woman's hair. I mean, that, that's the level
0: of the guy. The United States says that if he is extradited, he won't be subjected to special administrative treatment, so can't you go along with that?
2: No, 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 I wouldn't trust them. I mean, I, wouldn't tr- I think they're lying through their teeth, so I wouldn't trust them for a minute. I cannot understand why politicians don't make the simple point, how come America won't allow any of its citizens to be ever extradited to another country? But they're supposed to do what they like in other people's countries, with other people's citizens. The inconsistency is terrible.
0: Now, this case goes way back, doesn't it? And we've got so many people complicit in the situation that Julian finds himself in today. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. The complicity is part of a a culture, a culture of cowardice, a culture of compliance with what America wants, a culture of uh, collusion with uh, the establishment, a a culture of uh, people not wishing to risk their careers by speaking out on behalf of Julian Assange, and that's why I, you know, I refer to the stench, the appalling stench of of this period of history. So it's not just about one or two appalling individuals; it's about a whole culture that talks about the rule of law. But it's actually the rule of revenge and the rule of punishment and the the idea of um, not allowing dissidence. We're back to the days of, you know, that made Tom Paine flee to France after he'd written The Rights of Man. (laughs) It's It's the same culture. It's the same pursuit of anybody who challenges the establishment, which Julian, of course, has done.
0: And lost in all of this is the reasons why Julian exposed what he did.
2: Exactly. I mean, he, he exposed murder and mayhem. He exposed, he really challenged the idea that the public don't have a right to know. He challenged the idea that even, even human rights, details of human rights abuses, should be kept secret. That the state, the state is and should be all powerful. I mean, in a way, I mean, he's apart from um, Chelsea Manning. I mean, his comrade in this respect is um, the guy who fled to Russia, who exposed the fact that um, that uh, every American citizen was being was being spied on. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I mean, Edward Snowden was basically doing the same. Doing the same thing as as the as the WikiLeaks revelations. The attempt of America to dominate the world militarily and economically and culturally is really what uh, Assange challenged, and we're not allowed to do that.
0: And you think of um, the people in those videos that he exposed, the the treatment that those people in in the Middle East got from this from the marines and the soldiers from the United States who were in actually invading their countries.
2: Sure. Look, there is a system that says there are worthy and unworthy people in the world. And the worthy are, go to the right schools where the right uniform have come from the right religion. They're usually the, the right color and the other people are of little consequence. In other words, the people the people murdered in the streets of Baghdad were obviously regarded as of little consequence. For a start they were in they were in Baghdad. They were not Americans. So there was an entitlement to kill them and then deny that it had ever happened. But that stigmatization of the other as is the way states have ruled and powerful institutions have ruled since time immemorial.
0: Moving on to the war in the Ukraine. Stuart, I'd I'd like you to go back in history a little to give us all an understanding of what is at stake. What is the Ukraine and what is the history?
2: Well, I mean, I'm only going to go back as far as Stalin and, and, and up to the present day. I mean, here was... A part of the Soviet Union, a home which was also the breadbasket for for large parts of the world, who were subject to a um, a genocide of kind of Holocaust proportions by Stalin. I can't remember the exact numbers. About six million at least were starved to death in the antagonism of of the Soviets to to Ukraine. Of course, post war it was part of it was a, it was a communist republic part of the soviet union post 1989 it became independent i mean there's a checkered history of, of how it was governed within, with america uh, via nato trying to make it a bastion of the west which has led stupidly to the present confrontation with um, with russia I mean, I think the question really is what is the agency of the Ukrainian people? What are the aspirations of the Ukrainian people? I mean, lots of silly commentators, many of them so-called left wing, um, argue that there's, there are a lot of Nazi-oriented people with influence in the Ukraine. Well, that's true, but that's also true of the Soviet Union. It's also true of the United States. and it It's also true of the of right-wing skinheads in Australia. So this the idea that the Ukraine is any different from the right-wing extremists whom the German government fears in their own country, that unequal, stupid commentary coming from the left has tried to um, give a sort of weird justification for Putin's invasion. So the question, even through all that period that we've just described from Stalin to post-war, to um, to the to the present, the question is: What's the agency of the Ukrainian people? I mean, Putin and Co. are behaving as though 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, never happened. That's where we are at present. I mean, the 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 obvious outcome is the neutrality of of a future Ukraine, a bit like Austria, is neutral. No, that's not much of a potted history, but it's, I think it's the best I can do.
0: What do you think of Australia's role so far away from the conflict?
2: Well, I think it's not a very sophisticated role. It just seems to be taking its cue from uh, from, um, from the United States, saying, yeah, let's send more weapons, let's have more sanctions. There's no understanding of the history. There's no understanding of what peace should look like. It's We could be arguing for peace, for a peace with justice. We could be saying these are the parameters. We're not going to get into the business of seeing who can demonize the Russians as much as possible, because the Russians are losers as well, big time. We get uh, Morrison frothing at the mouth over Putin, but he's a proud ally of anything the United States wants. Uh, and he's foffing at the mouth about china, which is which is absurd. It's all this war like stance. It's all about war, it's all about armaments, it's all about the idea that our security will depend on the force of arms. That has only produced violence and death. Instead, we should and could be talking about the means of achieving peace.
0: It's hard to imagine how much in arms and weapons is actually being funneled into Ukraine at the moment.
2: I, I, yeah, I mean the place is going to be. I mean, not only are the fields covered in, in metal fields that should be sown ready for the springtime sowing of wheat, but I understand the field, the Ukrainian fields, are you know going to be filled with with metal, with unex, with exploded and unexploded munitions. And as you say, but what, what is going to happen if, you, if all you do is pile up weapons, you have to ask what the outcome is. That doesn't deny the rights of the, um, of the um, Ukrainian people to be fighting, but the, the language and the, um, the, the, the prognosis about peace is what we should be hearing about. And that means, that means really serious questions about arms. Or rejection about arms and it means serious questions about the benefit of sanctions long term because everybody's going to suffer from that. There's no effort. I mean, if you my argument earlier is that uh, we only have to go back to the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War and when the proud winners wanted to punish the losers, they wanted to have a victory <laughs> that only guaranteed the. Within twenty years, that guarantees a second world war.
0: Well, they can't afford so, to have a third one, can they?
2: No, but unless there's a massive effort to talk about peace, then only uh, then, then more violence is supposed. I mean, I spent the morning trying trying to persuade the respective candidates in our constituency for the federal election, the Greens, the Liberal, and the Labour. To come out with a joint statement about peace, it's, a, it's a, not a partisan issue. And I've said to them, look, I'll write the statement about peace. All I want you to do is sign it. <laughs> so because we 10 days time, we'll have a big rally in, in Nara about, about that. But that's only, you know, a, a very modest gesture from a small region of Australia.
0: I think about what's going to happen to the more than a million people who have left Ukraine. When peace finally comes, and it will come, how are they all going to get back and resume their lives?
2: Well, Well, look at the massive rebuilding that will have to occur. The whole business of uh, reconstruction, reconciliation is, is going to take two generations at least. We don't seem to be thinking about that. The consequences are are, um, are often, I mean, another part of my argument is that there's a massive there's another massive violence going on. It's called climate change. That ought to be the priority. There should be no time for anything, anything else. No build-up of arms. Complete rejection of nuclear weapons, and and an, an entire focus on combating climate change because the prospect of life on Earth being snuffed out is coming from climate change. And yet there's time to, in a way, heighten the prospect of climate change, but by all this burning of, um, burning of gases and burning of, of people and buildings that's only going to you know, emit more greenhouse gases. So it, it's a kind of suicidal policies uh, underway. One other quarrel I have is, as I think I've mentioned to you before, the mainstream media here are not a blind bit interested. They don't want to deal with this.
0: And as people have pointed out, the Ukraine was the breadbasket of the whole area and how are the people going to get on with that situation?
2: Well, I understand that the, the, the people... Of the world who benefited most from Ukrainian exports of, of wheat, live in North Africa, live in the very poor parts of North Africa, and the the ending of that supply of basic foods to North Africa is without who who have no other means of supply is a recipe as another recipe for disaster. People here are complaining that petrol's too expensive. Try thinking about this the unavailability of of basic foodstuffs in the continent of Africa. Is there anything we could cheer up your listeners with, Jen?
0: Well, yes, you can, because you had a swim in the ocean before. You met the dolphins.
2: I met the dolphins, and the dolphins were saying, why are you humans being so stupid? They look very relaxed. They swam by very easily they looked like superior beings, to my my way of thinking. And they didn't look as though they, they knew anything about war, which is a bit odd, I would have thought. Maybe human beings should teach them how to hate and torture and kill. So that's the end of the week prescription. Listen to the dolphins.
0: Thank you, Stuart.
2: Okay, cheers.
0: And I've been speaking to Professor Emeritus... O.A.M. Stuart Rees. He was from the University of Sydney. He is recipient of the inaugural Jerusalem al Peace Prize and author of the recent policy press book, Cruelty or Humanity.
4: Every day we come into Poland and the send us back.
6: Have your border force been pushing migrants back into Belarus?
3: Support resisting fortress Europe on Belarusian and Ukrainian border of Poland. While thousands fleeing war in Ukraine arrive in Poland, others who flee wars in Syria, Iraq or Yemen are pushed back to Belarus every day. Join fundraising efforts to support all people on the move, regardless of skin colour. Live music fundraiser, 23rd March, 7 pm, Cafe Gamma. Event deets at tinyurl.com forward slash fundraiser for BR. Or check out tinyurl.com forward slash border resistance to donate. At
4: least you are What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
3: Tune in to Done By Law.
0: An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives.
3: Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello. You know, all stories might, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet. Because Invasion Day was the start of a dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to leave this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people, and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through, because the genocide continues today. Like, Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground, because he's really ignorant, in my view.
5: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR Digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
3: Your subscription lapsed. We want you back. Spend more than the evening with us.
7: Reunite with us. Subscribe to 3CR and get excited. Call 9419
3: 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. And let's get back together. It'll feel so good. We both are so we
0: The title of Binoi Camp Mark's article in Pearls and Irritations on the 16th of March is Ukraine War and, quote, The Good Refugee quote. Binoy was a Commonwealth scholar at Selwyn College, Cambridge, and is currently lecturing at RMIT University here in Melbourne. Before we began talking about the war in Ukraine, I asked Binoy about that scholarship to Cambridge. That sounds pretty prestigious to me. <laughs> well, yes, it's... Uh, well,
8: well, it involved... Um you know, winning a scholarship to do PhD, you know, doctoral studies at Cambridge, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it was a process, a competitive process, you know, whether they you know, 400 out of 18,000 applicants or something like that, but that's for all of the Commonwealth, so the Commonwealth scheme is a funding scheme in the UK that's based on the entire Commonwealth, so people, you know, across countries, they're eligible to apply, make uh, applications to study at British institutions, so that's how it tends to work, yeah well, I mean the so the application pool for that year was something like eighteen thousand students, so eighteen thousand applications rather to four hundred positions,
3: okay.
0: and that's
8: across all the universities and across all the positions.
0: And what was your study?
8: international law and history, so you know my thesis was about uh, you know the emergence of the you know this so-called international morality between the wars you know the first world war and then the second world War where there was a discussion in the international law community about outlaw states and how do you deal with aggressive states within the international system, you know, with a reference to, to law. So a bit like, you know, what the League of Nations tried to do then, but then also what the UN talked about to discuss later. So it was looking at the discussion points of those things.
0: And this is something you've been interested in for quite a while?
8: Well, yes, because uh, before I, I did that uh, work, uh, I was looking at the, you know, what I found to be very strange terms such as uh, rogue state and uh, you know failed state, you know, which all had this moral kind of pejorative to them and whether it made sense you know, to even use them. And so I was looking at that kind of language and whether it's even appropriate to use language to describe states in that way. So it's, it's been an ongoing thing, and of course it never goes away because uh, the international community, all countries identify each other in moral terms, and as we see now with Russia and so on, you know, the same language is being used, so that never goes away.
0: So coming back to Australia, you settled in quite well? Well, yes, I mean, you know, I had, you know, my
8: parents uh, studied, oh, they didn't study, yet. they um, took up positions in teaching Japanese in Australia, so, you know, when I they came back, yeah, certainly wanted to find a place and where I could be close to them just to, you know, the aging parents and whatnot. So they uh, yes, and so, so I'm I've certainly settled in, yeah.
0: <laughs> what is your teaching regime at RMIT University?
8: Well, it, it covers human rights uh, and legal studies broadly speaking, but the primary the bigger subject I teach and the focus is on international human rights law, so that's a that's a big thing.
0: Certainly is. Well, look what's happening at the moment in the Ukraine, and you've written a piece about the, the, mm-hmm. good, the good refugee. I'll just take one yes. sentence out of your article. Globally, the war in Ukraine is now giving countries a chance to be very moral to the right type of refugee.
8: The nature of international refugee law, and in fact, in international human rights law, is that it should be applied irrespective of background, uh, race, beliefs, um, ethnic identity and so on. But unfortunately with international refugee policy, it's become very clear over the years that this is not the case and some refugees are seen to be more deserving than others. And the instance of the oh, sorry, as it's arisen out of uh, the Ukraine war demonstrates suddenly, you know, a kind of sentiment hostile to refugees. Of other backgrounds, you know, Australia is one example where the prime minister, of course, Scott Morrison, has said that there'll be a fast tracking of visas for Ukrainians who wish to come to Australia. They'll be put ahead of the pile. Um, and in Poland, there's been an open expressions, or open expressions of solidarity with Ukrainians because they're perceived to be like them, you know, essentially along similar terms. This is very different to, let's, let's put it this way irregular migrants or migrants who are of different backgrounds say from india from africa who have found themselves facing opposition at the border of poland and ukraine and in some instances being turned back and i know there's a lot of controversy about this the polish representative in the u.n claims that it's uh, a libel that this is not happening but there's a lot of evidence on the ground that if you are of um, of an african background of an indian background you are facing instances of discrimination on the border when seeking to come in to Poland. So the fact is there are differences that are acknowledged. They may not be expressed, they acknowledge, but in some cases they are, and we've seen that regarding the so-called good refugee. They have the credentials we like, and uh, we're going to capitalize on that.
0: You could only imagine the point of view of the Afghan people who served the Australian military while they were occupying their country when they learned that the refugees from Ukraine are given preference over their application to come to Australia.
8: Yes, that's a remarkable instance of how all this foot dragging and, and in fact impediments and uh, restrictions being placed by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the applications for uh, visas to come here you know, for Afghans, those who have been involved in security and translation in assisting Australian forces. And the Australian effort in Afghanistan—the fact that there's been such, so many difficulties and problems there, and it's taken so long—to uh, the imperilment, of course, of many of the family members and individuals still stuck in Afghanistan—to then see this, you know, that in a matter of days—and that's the, the thing that's remarkable—in a matter of days, with the rising numbers of refugees coming from, uh, crossing from Ukraine, into Poland, into Europe, and more broadly speaking there were these concessions being made immediately off the bat. It is quite remarkable. And so, you know, and given the involvement of Afghans and the Australian effort and how intimate and deep it's been, it is an astonishing contrast and very striking contrast to see that.
0: And there's also, I believe, a worry what's going to happen to those millions of Ukrainians who have crossed the borders. They might be very welcome at the moment, but... If they remain in Europe for quite a long while, they might not be quite as welcome as they are now. It's a lot of people.
8: Yes, that's true. Um, the, the you know sentiment or you know warm sentiments and gratitude can actually start curdling after a while. They can go a bit cold. So the initial reception is well, The first and foremost. The reception is, of course, for people who are fleeing the you know the war. But it's also being done as a kind of a spite to uh, the Russians as well, to Vladimir Putin especially. So this is all the mood as it stands now. But ultimately, if this drags out further, you know, having, for example, in Poland, you know, a million refugees is going to be something that's going to constitute a strain on the country's resources. They will have to also find, you know, measures to cope with that. And, and uh, you'll expect that the European approach to it is going to be. A problematic one because they're so divided. The EU is very divided when it comes to approaching refugees. Generally, they're divided as to how to deal with sharing the burden of processing claims, and divided about the issue of sharing residency matters as well when it comes to these things. So, for the moment, uh, things are looking, um, you know, positive and generous when it comes to Ukrainian refugees. But you know, it's, it's worth noting, for example, that even say the Australian expressions of generosity, there's not a suggestion necessarily that those arriving here are going to remain here indefinitely. You know, just as was the case with the Kosovar intake, of course, after 1999, there was in some cases an assumption that they might return home. So these all come with qualifications too. It's not exactly unqualified you know, a generosity that's being offered either.
0: We wonder about the reputation of Australia in other countries, due to our treatment of refugees?
8: Well, the, it depends which circle we're talking about. Uh, the, the reputation of uh, Australia, and certainly when it comes to those you know, believing in a more generous refugee, refugee regime and, and a regime more sympathetic to asylum seekers, find the Australian model, so to speak, appalling, and the Australian system appalling. But unfortunately, There are a good number of policymakers and advisors in, for example, the European Union who have looked at the Australian example with a degree of admiration. Uh, And it's not just your usual right-wing populist types like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, The uh, Danish government, for example, which is currently run by a center-left, at least notionally center-left, uh, government and the Social Democrats uh, is uh, remarkable in the sense that it's actually embraced a policy rather similar to the. It's not quite turned back the boats because they don't have those, it's not quite the geographical location to do that, but they have embraced notions of process, offshore processing in different countries. This is something that's been very enthusiastically embraced by the Danish Prime Minister. So The Australian model is actually looked upon with a degree of admiration, and we just have to see the efforts currently being made by the UK um, Interior Secretary, you know, who actually has expressed open admiration about a turn-back-the-boats model processing individual claims in um, distant territories such as Ascension Island and so on. Uh, So unfortunately, that's uh, very much the forefront of policymakers' minds.
0: Some people focus on the Tampa incident to point to the Australian attitude to migrants or refugees, but it goes back a long, long way past that, doesn't it?
8: Yes, it does. The Tampa was a very interesting example of what has been present for Australian debates on this. The difference between the Tampa, though, and, and what's happened before you know, was that in August 2001, the issue of refugee arrivals was overtly politicized and actually was a very much a top-down approach. And by, by that, I mean it was very much the prime minister of the day, John Howard, and his cabinet using boat arrivals as a political ploy and realigning the approach to refugee arrivals, certainly the type of arrivals and the so-called bad arrivals or bad refugees. And... And you know, previously, there have been debates, of course, the, um, the issue of the Vietnamese arrivals in the 80s, the late 70s, and so forth. But the policy then under Fraser was more accommodating. It was you know, the acceptance that this had been, you know, in- individuals were seeing uh, Vietnam. Many of them had also sympathetic connections with the Australians, the Australians having also fought in uh, the Vietnam War. So... There was accommodation for that, but a lot of it was directed from the top. So refugee approaches were directed as seen as as very much a positive thing. But things shifted in 2001, and it's very much now become a case of very restrict control about arrivals, uh, an obsession with the humanitarian intake, an obsession with this fiction of a queue that supposedly individuals have to go through. And in so doing, of course, it's uh, made Australia very much uh, a forefront power uh, and unfortunately liked, uh, disturbingly so in many circles, for doing that and very much envied in terms of what they've done.
0: Does the research show that the intake of European refugees after World War II was due to the fact that we just couldn't get enough British migrants to come here, that it was really a second, second choice? we needed to well it,
8: it, yeah i, I think it, the the broadening of the focus was precisely to make it more appealing it was uh, you know the the british the, there was of course uh, the policy of uh, wanting to encourage uh, you know british arrivals and so forth the 10 pound poms and so on but the reality was that uh, with the sheer uh, you know the, the development needs in australia with uh, the snowy mountain projects and these vast infrastructure projects were such that it, a conscious decision was made to uh, import or to bring labor from overseas. And you know. so in Europe, there was a concession made. Yes, okay, make a concession to certain types of Europeans. You know, and so, um, hence the increase of numbers from those you know, um, Mediterranean countries, Baltic states, things like that. So there was an increase in numbers from those countries. Now, but it was always rationed as well. You know, there was an understanding that you know, this would be regulated, individuals would be permitted to come, but it was done in in a a very regulated fashion. Australia never really, you know, faced quite... It's always been controversial the way Australia has dealt with refugees per se, as opposed to controlled immigration, because uh, was quite an issue regarding, for example, uh, Jewish refugees. uh, Even after the Second World War, when certain Jewish refugees were seeking to come to Australia, and there was a debate in some circles, about whether they would, in fact, be able to uh, assimilate in Australian life, especially those Jews of the Eastern European background as opposed to, you know, the John Monash Jews, which is a different, you know, again, this notion of a division between types of refugee came through. So it really has depended on how the situation has panned out.
0: And then, of course, you have the example of the whites from Zimbabwe and South Africa, they're not sort of talked about in the same sense as being refugees. They were people who could come to Australia and bring money with them.
8: Exactly. They've never been seen in the same light. You're, you're quite right. They're almost seen, uh, I would say, as uh, fellow kinsmen and women, essentially, if you consider the uh, political class in Australia. So even though Australia you know, likes to pride itself in having a multi-ethnic society, Its political mindset, the political psyche is still very Anglo-Saxon, still very much uh, governed by this kind of assumptions. And so the induction of the persecuted white farmer in South Africa, and this is something, of course, was very much highlighted in the rhetoric of the now current, you know, the current defense minister and former home affairs minister Peter Dutton, who actually did express the view that uh, South African white farmers should be given preference in terms of applications, almost essentially guaranteed admission. So it was a remarkable thing. Even his statements were considered too rich at the time for the then foreign minister, Julie Bishop, and and for his own department. But it's worth noting that the assumption is that if it's white African farmers from Zimbabwe or or from South Africa, there's a kind of automatic kinship and they're not really seen as foreigners as such. They're just seen as kinsfolk and to be brought in. And so they're put in a very different category as to others, you know, say, from the Middle East or Africa.
0: Do you believe the situation for refugees at this time, say 2022, is very different to what it was maybe 30 years ago? Or are there not a lot of changes
8: well, I think it it is different um, now insofar as the sheer numbers now, the the displaced populations and so forth that are happening and growing in numbers. There, there have been, of course, you know, significant conflicts. The Syrian civil war was a very significant one that saw millions displaced and, of course, spread. Uh, the and uh, let's not forget so the interventions, the Western-led, U.S.-led interventions in Iraq and Syria. It saw a huge number of refugees as well and triggered a collapse, essentially, of societies that also propelled this, the, the emergence of Islamic State and these movements. And so uh, the same thing with the collapse of Libya created a huge refugee problem as well in North Africa. So in the last 30 years, we've had these instances that have really upended the refugee cut and created even more problems and more issues. The original refugee system was created in response to displaced people in the aftermath of the Second World War, and, and it reflects that. But the system now is under assault because countries, many countries, do not want to abide by those uh, sacred rights articulated in the UN Refugee Convention. You know, things like, uh, for example, non-discrimination when you arrive in a country non-discrimination on the basis of belief, and non-penalization as well, that you're not to be penalized when you arrive, and if Australia is very much guilty of violating all these provisions about the way people arrive in the country. So the crisis is actually worse than ever. And be wary of people who talk about reforming it, because they're the first people who probably want to lift the drawbridge when it comes to dealing with refugees and asylum seekers.
0: And there's also the issue when you spoke about Syria there of the government welcoming a certain number of Syrian refugees, but please, we'll have them, the Christian ones, not the Muslim ones.
8: Well, yes. So in terms of Syria, you're right. So in terms of the Syrian refugees, preference has been shown towards the right sort of uh, right sort of Syrian refugee in this particular case, Christian. The same thing, of course when it came to, uh, uh, well, the depredations of uh, Islamic State and uh, the effects, for example, on the Yazidi preference was given uh, to groups, Christian groups, who had been the target of Islamic State. So under then, of course, the stewardship of Tony Abbott, so this was a policy that was implemented, and we know that Prime Minister Abbott uh, was very much and has very much been at the forefront of this concern that there are not enough Christians breeding in this world. And I know that's putting it rather crudely, but it's certainly accurate. He's written extensively and spoken about the subject at length that he fears that European civilization is being swamped and displaced by the onset of uh, swarthy Muslim refugees, irregular rivals, and so on. And so he fears the, the kind of demographic uh, choking. Uh, that's taking place. So whenever he speaks about this, he makes no secret of the fact that there are certain types of people fleeing that he prefers, and uh, certainly makes no bones about it.
0: Well, that brings in the issue of racism in Australia, and people say, no, I'm not racist, but it it continues, and we need to blame governments, we need to blame media. Who do we need to change, to change people's opinions of migrants from other countries?
8: Well, the change, you see, unfortunately in Australia, the, uh, this is, uh, and this has been the sad thing, is that a lot of this is orchestrated from the top. And until the major parties reach an understanding, listen to those, you know, who are protesting, you know, bravely and, and uh, insistently outside these detention centre hotels, uh, that are doubling up like Park Hotel, for example, in Melbourne. And I try to insist you know, that this is an outrageous state of affairs, and these people should be sent into the community and settled accordingly. Uh, then I don't see much change happening, because both the Labour Party and the Liberal Nationals have come to some understanding that border, you know, that border controls are the preeminent policy platform and need to be followed. That comes first, and then refugees come second or distant third, because the primary issue is security and as long as refugees and arrivals are put in the same bracket as terrorism and security and secrecy um, of the seas and whatnot, then we're going to see the Australian public very hardened to this. And there are people that are softening towards this, but unfortunately many of them have swallowed the rhetoric since 2001 that uh, those arriving by sea are not to be trusted. And precisely because they were the ones, the architects. Howard and so forth were the architects of these policies, you know, the Pacific Solution, and then of course uh, Operation Sovereign Borders with uh, Prime Minister Abbott. Precisely because these were the individuals doing that, they should also be an acceptance at the top levels that refugees are a good thing, that this is that people should not be punished, that people smugglers, you know, are not themselves demons for facilitating crucial rights under the refugee convention. So they're these things that should be part of the conversation.
0: And there should be a an opposition from the, the Labour Party maybe to step up and take a mantle on this?
8: Well yes, the the Labour Party has this um you know grouping of course Labor Labour for refugees and so on, but they never tend to seem to have much traction come election time. They always tend to be rather quiet. And in between periods they are There seems to be a lot of activity. You do tend to see, you know, statements made, and certainly some Labour members are open about this sort of thing. But unfortunately, there's no, you know, there's certain things that are deemed uh, unchallengeable. You know, they don't want to touch those things. And there's a perception, and that's Labour's big problem. The moment Labour touches things such as border security or, you know, being more generous to refugees, then uh, their opponents, of course, or the LNP, then come out and say that they're soft on it. And I think this, this of course, is a ridiculous argument, but it's certainly something that's played on. And so there needs to be more... Well, to put it mildly, Labour needs to be braver, And I think that's really the fundamental point. Needs to dictate the narrative, needs to seize it, rather than letting others dictate it for them.
0: Any final comments?
8: Well, I suppose the only final comment about this is that this sad division between the people who are preferred and those who are not tend to govern policymaking in this field. You know, the, it's all very good to talk about human rights and universal human rights. And when it comes to refugees, preferences have been shown historically and uh, no more practically illustrated than what we see now in the Ukraine war. You know, of course, those fleeing the conflict should be given, you know, all the measures and means to be protected and seek shelter. But uh, goodness me, you know, it would have been so much more Fitting if it had been applied to individuals fleeing from the Middle East or from Africa, if they'd been given the same kind of generosity and treatment rather than what we see now.
0: Thank you so much.
8: Okay, it's a pleasure. Anytime.
0: And be annoyed, Mark Kemp lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of Independent Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.